0: Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast?
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor at Wired, and you are listening to The Gadget Lab, the podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I am joined, as always, by co-host Lauren Good, Senior Writer at Wired. Hello. And co-host Ariel Pardes, Senior Associate Editor at Wired.
2: Hello. Later on in the show, you're going to hear an interview Mike and I taped with Mark Price, the CEO of Firewire Surfboards. We talked to Mark about the movement afoot in the surfing industry to come up with cleaner, more environmentally responsible methods for making surfboards. Weirdly, making a surfboard involves a lot of chemicals and materials that end up polluting the ocean, and Firewire is just one of the companies that is working to change that.
3: And unfortunately, I was not there for the interview with Mark Price. I wish I could say it was because I was out surfing, Hmm. but I was sick. I still am a little bit sick. Uh, But it's a great interview, and I'm excited that everybody gets to hear it. And I think Mike and Arielle are excited that I have not been talking that much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Yes. Uh, Well, let's uh, have Ariel start with the news then.
2: Sure. First of all, is there an echo in here? Do you hear that? No? No, that's just Amazon's (laughs) latest device, the Echo Show 5. I'm
3: so proud that you took over bad puns in my talking absence. (laughs)
2: Um, Yes, Amazon has a new Echo Show. This is the Alexa device that comes with a microphone and a camera and a screen. And Amazon has updated it with some built-in privacy features. So, for example, there is now a physical shutter to cover the camera and there's a way to ask Alexa to delete everything it's recorded recently. You could just say, Alexa, delete everything I said today and supposedly, poof, it disappears from the device. Um, Now obviously that's like a pretty small step toward fixing some of the broader privacy concerns with these devices. You can't ask Alexa to delete everything it's recorded ever. Um, You can't ask it to delete everything it's recorded that week or month or year. Um, And all of these privacy features are still opt in. But it does show that Amazon is catching on to the consumer's concerns around privacy, especially when it comes to putting one of these all-seeing, all-hearing, all-knowing devices in your home.
0: Mostly knowing.
2: Mostly knowing. <laughs> um, Lauren, you've, you've tried out the Echo shows before. Do you think some of these built-in privacy features will persuade people who've been like a little squeamish about buying them in the past to give them a try?
3: I have used two of the Echo Shows, both previous generations, and I will say I've liked it. I had the first one on my kitchen countertop for a long time, and then I had a loaner from the company when I was reviewing... The second one, I'm trying to think if I actually reviewed it or I just wrote about it. I might have just written about it on Wired.com. And I, I like them because of the display. Uh, they're larger devices. This one is 5.5 inches um, in terms of the display diagonal. The other ones are 10. And so when you're like, let's say you're cooking in the kitchen and you go to set a timer, you then have a visual representation of the timer instead of just wondering how much time you have left. Or if you're playing a song, you have a visual representation of the name of the song and the playlist and the play controls and everything else. So I found it to be really useful. But then last year, when that story emerged in the news about the Portland woman who reported that Alexa had gone rogue and recorded and sent a conversation, a private conversation that she'd been having at home, it freaked me out enough to dismantle the show. I took it down off the counter. I haven't used it since. I do have other Echo devices in the home, though, or I should say other Alexa devices in the home. Um, I do think that consumers at this point have a little bit of concern, not just about those one-off incidents that's everybody's worst nightmare of Alexa recording a private conversation and sending it to somebody in your contact list. Just this general idea that there's so much opacity right now around how much of our data is being collected, how the companies are using it, and where they're sharing it. And so to your point, Ariel this whole idea that, okay, there's a camera shutter now and you can just slide it shut, or you might be able to say, Alexa, delete everything that I said today. I'm sorry if I just triggered all of your Alexa devices in your <laughs> home if you were listening to this. That still put, largely puts the onus on the consumer. The burden of responsibility is still in the consumer to do all of these things. And to me, it just seems like Amazon is perhaps slipping some privacy features into product announcements like this because there are senators and consumer uh, privacy advocate groups that are really questioning right now what Amazon is doing with its data.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: That's my take. That was a lot of talking. And they'll go silent now for the next two days. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I think it's interesting because so much of this like voice controlled AI assistant stuff is because there's not a visual representation of what's happening on most of the devices. Like, you know, a lot of people have Echoes; they don't necessarily have Echo shows, or what's the the little one, the Echo the dot, the dot. Um, so they don't really have that interface that they can just like check a button and cl- click click clear history i mean they can do that technically but it's not part of the experience right the experience is you talk to the thing the thing talks back to you and you don't really have any control over it so much of what's happening now with voice activated computing systems and like ambient computing all of that stuff that we're used to where we used to make all those decisions is just removed or hidden hidden away so that's obviously not great so i'm glad that they're adjusting to that
3: one of the things that, actually, you, Mike, you asked, and Amazon still has not really answered, I don't think, is whether or not metadata is still collected from your queries, Right. which is a really good question to ask because they may erase the query itself, but then the existence or the fact that you were still interacting mm-hmm. with the speaker in some way is still something that is that is under question. Um,
0: Yeah, like maybe I asked it to make a phone call, or maybe I asked it to play something on Spotify, or maybe I just asked it, you know, 16 questions, and they still know that I asked 16 questions, even though the content of the questions is gone.
3: Right, they delete a voice recording via voice, Uh, they delete the last voice recording uh, from the day, and then they delete the corresponding text transcript associated with that account from all of the main Alexa systems and the subsystems, but yeah, metadata is just an unanswered question.
0: Uh, Shall we move on? Yes. Uh, We have more privacy good news. Yay. (laughs) Uh, This this one comes from Google. Now, as you may know, Chrome extensions have posed a security problem for Google in recent years. The company has been busy policing extensions for its Chrome web browser that were found to be collecting more user data than they should. Or worse, hijack me hijacking people's computers and secretly installing malware as wired's lily hay newman reports this week google will soon start limiting how much user data extensions can request and only allow extensions to gather the minimum amount of user data necessary for them to perform as described these new rules are going to take effect this fall Uh, And I mean, they're announcing it now so that developers have a time to catch up before the rules go into full effect. And this is all part of a larger security audit around um, customer safety safety that Google is calling Project Strobe, which is a (laughs) weird name for it. Other targets of the audit, such as Gmail and Google Drive, are also seeing their security tightened this year as well. Now, I don't know if you particularly have had any problems with Google extensions going rogue, but there are... 180,000 of them available in the Google Chrome store and something like three quarters of people who use Chrome use extensions of some sort. Oh, wow. So you can imagine that like if there are dirty extensions out there, which there absolutely are, there are literally tens of thousands of them.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. And most most people, if they're anything like me, will download an extension, maybe use it for a little while, forget about it, mm-hmm. and then forget what kinds of permissions they've granted to that mm-hmm. extension, which in my case are usually like full permissions. So yeah. <laughs> whatever you want to do, <laughs> that's fine uh, in exchange for me using your extension for about one week and then forgetting about it. <laughs> yeah. And and honestly, it
0: just comes up as like a as a modal. You know, it right. just comes up with like a thing that has a bunch of words on it and you all you know right. what your brain tells you is that if you click that blue button you get to go back to what you were doing before you were so rudely interrupted right so you just click the button and you don't read it
2: right um they could I,
0: literally be asking for anything
2: right I, I think i think this is great that google is doing this this kind of mirrors some of what apple has done in recent years around its app permissions mm-hmm. but basically taking some of the onus off of consumers to limit what Their extensions um, can see, can access, can install on their own and taking a sort of uh, company stand in in sort of determining what third parties can do.
0: I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the third party restrictions on Google Drive, uh, because I think one of the most insidious invasions that I've experienced in the last year has been Google Drive spam.
3: What what does it look like? What happens?
0: So you go into Google Drive and normally you just see your drive and then there's the shared with me section. So you click on shared with me and you see everything that you have access to that other people have granted you access to. Well, what I get is I get documents with names that read like porno spam (laughs) that just show up.
3: Sounds like a likely excuse. Wait, what?
0: Yeah. So like I go into shared with me and I see like my tax stuff. Like, you know, healthcare documents that I have shared with people in my family. And then in between there, there's like, you know, invitations toward adult, invitations to adult activities, Uh, people begging me to do certain things to certain parts (laughs) of their bodies, all kinds of shit that you would expect to see in your spam folder. But it's right there in my Google Drive.
3: And that's because of an extension. No,
0: that's just because people have my email address out there in the world. And instead of sending me an email... With some sort of malware inside of it, they send me a Google Doc with some sort of malware inside of it, and they just share it with me, and I'm sure thousands of other people too.
3: Wow, well now yep. I need to go check my shared. I feel like that feels is, you're like very What it's like problem. to be a woman on the internet?
0: Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> yes to both of you. Yes to both of you. It is it, so. I think it's something that you know people with people who already get a lot of spam because I already get a lot of spam. Uh, have to deal with. No, I mean, it's just one of those things. Drive. Do you want me to see? Do you want me to show you right now? I'm a little right bit now? nervous about see?
3: this. I'm actually, let's do a live check of our Google Drives.
2: Yeah, I'm skeptical that this is, kind of that that this is happening to, to anyone but for. Mike.
3: I just, I maybe I just haven't clicked on this shared with me in a long time. Oh, there's one right there. Drive. Oh boy,
0: right at the top. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh boy, when right at the
0: top. I hope it'll get fired for showing me this.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's let us just state right now. That Mike is not going to be fired for showing the, what he just showed to us. I have but two. It's it's, th- it's there, people. It's I have there.
0: two of them. One one showed up early this week, and one showed up earlier this month. And really, all you can do <laughs> is highlight them right and now. delete them, mark them for deletion. So I'm waiting for Google to f- Google to fix uh, third party oh. spammers oh, wait, access to I might, Google Drive. I might
3: have one. Hold on. Really? Wait, I don't know. No, I don't know. It's from 2016. I'm afraid to open it.
0: Yeah, don't open it. <laughs> okay. Whatever you do, do not open okay. it. Okay,
3: I think maybe it is one. <laughs> Um, I don't know, though. It may have just been somebody who was, you know, like a freelancer who we were working with and doesn't have a name I recognize. And then, oh, I don't know. Um, Can we just say two kudos to Google for coming up with project names that always sound so serious, like Project Strobe. Like that is just, I mean, really, they come up with these names. They all sound like they're from, they sound like they're from movies in the 90s when people Thought they were making movies about what computer hacking was like, right? Like Dragonfly and Maven. Like I'm pretty sure that Angelina Jolie and Johnnie Miller starred in those movies. you Yeah. Know?
0: And then there's a guy with sunglasses on, using a computer, typing furiously. I'm into the mainframe. That's right. That's yeah. right.
3: Strobe Project Strobe. Oh boy. Well, for those of you not keeping close track of the calendar, it is almost Apple WWDC time. It is one of the biggest, most important software developer conferences of the year. It kicks off Monday with a a keynote, and this is likely to be delivered by Apple CEO Tim Cook. Tim. If he makes it in time after his morning workout, I'm pretty convinced that dude works out for like six hours a day. People get super <laughs> excited about WWDC, um, sometimes even more so than Apple's hardware events, even though those are very hyped up. Because these are all of the new software features that are going to be coming to your iPhone, your iPad, your Mac, your Apple Watch sometime this summer, in the coming months, in the fall. And the best part is they're free. So it's a way to get a nice free- refresh on your expensive Apple hardware without paying for a thing. Uh, now, Some of the top rumors that we're hearing so far this year an iOS, which is is likely to be called iOS 13. There might be an iPhone dark mode for apps. Dark mode is a thing right now. Um, I think Paris Martin wrote about a dark mode for us. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There are gonna be improvements to the main productivity apps like Mail from Apple, which always feels very quaint because it's like, oh, mail, you're still using mail. Um, <laughs> there might possibly be an improved volume up and down experience. Um, right now, people get kind of annoyed because when you go to do volume up or down on the, on the phone, it just takes up the whole middle of your screen on iPhone. And so they might change that. There are gonna be specific features in iOS 13 that impact iPad, specifically around things like files and um, tabs within apps and things like that. But then on Mac, I mean, the big news is that this marzipan thing, that we've heard about for a couple of years now, it's probably going to be revealed in a much more kind of official way. This is the project code name for Apple's efforts to build a framework over the past couple of years that allows iOS apps to port really easily to the Mac. So in the past, some people have said, oh, this means the two operating systems are merging. Apple um, has said, no, 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 we're not merging the operating systems. At least that's what they've said in the past. This is just all about making apps um, more readily and easily available on the Mac. Um, and then there are probably going to be lots of little updates for the not so little business of Apple Watch as well. Yeah, That's what we're expecting, but we're probably going to have a lot more news to talk about next week.
2: DevDev is always a whirlwind, um, and especially because it's the sort of end of developer conference season. We we get so amped up with all these other dev conferences, and then when Apple's finally rolls around, it feels like the sort of cherry on top, um, but we can definitely expect um, threaded through all of their announcements that they'll be talking a lot about their stance on privacy, which is the sort of buzzword of the year and something that Apple um, and Tim Cook especially likes to sort of brag about um, since their stance on privacy has always been and will continue to be very different from the other big companies in Silicon Valley. So that's right. Get ready for that.
3: Privacy is a thing. You know, at Google last month, Google CEO Sundar Pichai made a point to, he ran an op-ed in the New York Times on the day of their keynote and said, you know, privacy is not a luxury good. And that was pretty much a direct shot at Apple, which has always said, it keeps your data private, it collects as little data as possible, it doesn't sell that data, but, you know, you have to pay $1,000 for a phone. And Um,
0: their services costs a monthly subscription.
3: That's Right. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, things like Apple Music, right? There's no tier. You just have to pay.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, specifically like iCloud, you know, there is mm-hmm. there is a free tier, but it's so small as to be inconsequential and unusable.
3: Oh, right. And it's like now the options are two ninety nine and nine ninety nine. Yeah. which is just bull. But anyway, another time Apple we're going to discuss.
0: I mean, it's fine. If you care about that She's sort of thing, it's, you know, you just budget it, it in. Up.
3: It but all adds up. all adds up. Sundar. Yeah, yeah Sundar yeah. said that. And so it's going to be interesting to see... What Apple's take will be this year? What their stance will be on privacy on stage? Because at this point, all the tech companies are sort sure of taking jabs at each other, and in the past, Apple is taking jabs at Facebook. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what uh, what they have to say. But I think it's going to be really exciting. And I will be on the ground, and Tom Simonite will be on the ground, and our editor in chief may be on the ground. And uh, yeah, it'll be a party. you will get, get your uh,
0: WWDC party. keynote bingo cards.
3: Oh, get them ready.
0: Yeah, there's going to be what like uh, customer sat. Uh, Number of iPhones sold. um, How many Android phones are on the latest version of Android versus how many iOS devices are on the latest version of iOS.
3: Courage. The word courage. 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 Mm -hmm. Uh Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Privacy. Um, The best yet.
0: Time well
2: spent.
3: One more thing. And in the middle
2: is Oprah.
3: Oprah. <laughs> now, if any of you listening have special bingo cards that you want to share with us, just send them to Mike's Google Drive. Yep. Put them in a share doc and <laughs> send them.
0: Yeah, and put some sort of salacious X-rated, um, you know, title on the doc before you share it. Because it's, <laughs> it's the only way I'll see Lots of dongles.
3: It. We're all um, going to need a lot of dongles. Dongle is a dirty,
0: dongle's a dirty word. Dongle is a dirty
3: word. Well...
0: Let's take a break and then come back with our interview with FireWire Surfboard CEO, Mark Price.
1: This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Reid Hoffman.
2: And I'm Aria Finger.
0: If you're interested in learning about how technology and humanity can come together to make a better future, then Possible is for you. We invite ambitious builders and deep thinkers like Trevor Noah, Kara Swisher, Sam Altman, and so many more help us sketch out the brightest version of the future and what it will take to get there.
2: If you want to be part of the future today, then subscribe to Possible wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: The great irony in the sport of surfing is that the process of making a surfboard puts a great deal of strain on the environment. The various chemicals and materials used to assemble boards, leashes, and wetsuits end up polluting the waterways and defiling the very beaches that surfers rely on. There are many organizations dedicated to protecting the world's oceans, places like the Oceanic Society and the Surfrider Foundation, but there's also a movement afoot among manufacturers of surfing equipment. It's called Sustainable Surf, and it's a nonprofit organization that establishes guidelines for producing less-toxic surfboards called boards. One company that's made a name for itself building eco-boards is Firewire Surfboards. The company's boards have gained endorsements from surfing pros like Kelly Slater and Rob Machado. And just recently, Firewire acquired the longboard maker Carve Sports and will be introducing more sustainable longboard designs later this year. Today, our guest on the show is Firewire CEO Mark Price, who's joining us from sunny Southern California to talk about eco-boards, sustainability, and surfing in general. Mark Price, thanks for joining us on the show today. Um, We would like to have you tell our audience a little bit about what the Sustainable Surf movement is and what the EcoBoard program
4: is. What exactly is an EcoBoard? Well, surfboards have traditionally been built from pretty toxic materials, and about seven or eight years ago... These, uh, Kevin Wilden and Michael Stewart got together and decided that they wanted to help move the industry towards better practices and less toxic materials. So they formed an organization called Sustainable Surf, and they created the EcoBoard certification, which is very similar to LEED certification in architecture, and it created certain benchmarks that manufacturers could hit. And in doing so, your product would be EcoBoard certified. I see.
2: And how are some of the ways that um, Firewire Surfboards is making boards that meet that certification?
4: The largest component in our progression towards EcoBoard certification was when we switched to bio resins in July of 2014. And as of that date, 100% of our production was built using bio epoxy resin. And as a result, we qualified for the lower level of Board certification across our entire product line.
2: And what exactly is a bioresin and sort of what problem does it solve?
4: So the bioresins use um, organic cellulose uh, uh, materials as opposed to pure chemistry. Um, and so they're not entirely organic. Uh, they definitely have toxic elements to them. But the amount of VOCs that are omitted by a bioresin is substantially less than traditional epoxy resin. So it has a much lower carbon footprint uh, than a traditional resin. And therefore, you're reducing the overall CO2 impact of building a surfboard using a bioresin versus uh, a traditional resin. So to give us some context, what is the environmental
0: impact of producing a surfboard? Um, You mentioned resin. I know there's also foam involved. Uh, what sorts of things has the industry traditionally done that uh, companies like yours are trying to change?
4: So traditional surfboards are built, uh, the two two main ingredients are polyurethane foam, which is uh, often referred to as PU, and polyester resins, which are referred to as PE. So you'll hear people refer to PU surfboards or PU slash PE. And those materials are incredibly toxic. For example, to clean up your plant and equipment when you're using polyester resins, you often have to use industrial solvents like acetone, which are known carcinogens which are absorbed through the skin and through breathing. Whereas with bioresins, not only do you have a much lower carbon footprint and much lower VOCs, which are volatile organic compounds emitted by the resin itself, but for example, in our factory, we use uh, citrus cleaners to clean the plant and equipment versus a product like acetone. So it has quite profound implications for the manufacturing environment. When you walk into a traditional PU PE factory, if you're not wearing quite sophisticated respira- respiratory equipment, you will get a splitting headache within five or 10 minutes. Uh, whereas you can walk around bioresin being used for quite some time and, and you'll, you'll pick up a smell but it doesn't have that toxic or or the same toxic environment that uh, polyester resins create. Uh, Do the boards perform the same? In our view, they do. You know, there's quite a debate uh, around epoxy surfboards and EPS foam, which is expanded polystyrene, which is the other material we use. So instead of the PU, uh, polyurethane foam, we use EPS, which is expanded polystyrene foam, which is also less toxic than PU foam. And it depends on who you talk to. I mean, there's a lot of entrenched interests around PUPE. Uh, it's very cost effective and easy to work with. And quite candidly, a lot of pro surfers swear by it. So there is a segment of the market that just believes that no matter what, those are the best materials to use when building surfboards. We're of the mindset that epoxy resins and EPS foams are not only less toxic, but when built correctly, can certainly equal, if not surpass, the performance characteristics of PU slash PE.
2: I want to ask about another material, which is wool. I know that Firewire introduced a wool surfboard very recently, which sounds absolutely nuts. Uh, will you tell us a little <laughs> bit about what that looks like, how wool fits into this sustainable movement and, and sort of what it does for a surfboard?
4: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's quite an interesting story. Uh, About six or eight years ago, a very talented New Zealand surfboard builder by the name of Paul Barron, who was also concerned about the environment and wanted to use raw materials that were indigenous to New Zealand, uh, started experimenting with sheep's wool as a replacement for traditional fiberglass. And after many years of trial and error, he perfected a technique whereby the sheared wool with minimal processing. So it's not the wool in a sweater or a wool suiting material. It's pretty raw fiber. So there's not a lot of energy going into the processing of it to create, it, to create the material to build a surfboard. But it does require some fairly unique manufacturing processes in order to apply it to the exterior of a surfboard. But anyway, basically, what we do is we impregnate the wool with resin, and it replaces the exterior fiberglass that you would use on a surfboard with the wool. From a sustainability perspective, it's it's quite a nuanced nuanced debate in the sense that. Um, The wool itself is obviously biodegradable. It's compostable. It's way less toxic than the filaments that go into fiberglass. So there's a real strong sustainability story behind the wool fiber itself. And in addition to that, we only buy our wool from a New Zealand co-op that has the highest standards of animal welfare. For example, X number of sheep per hectare. They audit the farms every six months to make sure that they are adhering to the co-op's practices. And so we're confident that we have the supply chain transparency in the sense that the animals are looked after and the entire process is being done correctly. However, when it comes to the carbon footprint of wool, it's actually slightly higher than fiberglass because sheep burp and fart. And the (laughs) methane (laughs) gas that they put out actually which is a a form of co2 actually when when you combine that from a life cycle analysis which is looking at the material from its very beginnings all the way through the supply chain it's slightly higher than fiberglass now we offset that in a couple ways one we're about to launch a program where we're going to be planting uh, mangrove trees in southeast asia in conjunction with sustainable surf and mangrove trees absorb CO2. They also stop uh, shoreline erosion because they can grow in salt water as well as fresh water. And so we're gonna negate the CO2 impact of not only the wool, but our entire manufacturing operation. And then if you wanna look long-term, you know, obviously down the road, and, and I don't know when this point will come, but at some point, most products won't be built with virgin raw materials. They will require recycled and upcycled materials to build them. And when you look at the recycling of a surfboard, wool will come into play because it's infinitely uh, more recyclable than fiberglass and less toxic when you look at the, the full lifecycle analysis of the material. So you have to look kind of longer term to see its real full benefit. But in the short run, we're obviously leveling the playing field with the carbon offsets.
0: Um, You know, one of the things about uh, the surf industry is that you have to get um, your boards and your equipment, whatever you're making, sandals, clothing, um, into the hands of athletes uh, to help. Uh, promote the product through sponsorships or through using it in tournaments showing up in photos with it uh, what has the response and the buy-in been like among like the pro athlete community not only for firewire but for sustainable surfboards in general are our pros hopping on them and riding them in tournaments and helping promote them
4: Look, it's a great question, and you're right. You know, At the end of the day, we're making sporting good equipment, and athlete endorsements are critical to create the credibility around performance. Uh, when we launched, there was a very high-profile athlete by the name of Taj Burrow. He was consistently placing in the top five in the world rankings, and he joined us uh, in uh, late 2006. And his winning percentage went up 40% when he jumped on our equipment versus the previous five years before he joined us and in the five years that he surfed for us. And that was a huge endorsement of our technology and alternative materials in the whole you know, detoxification of the modern surfboard and everything that we stood for. And that set us on a path which has led to where we are today. More recently, other athletes have got on board. I mean, Kelly Slater invested in our company in 2014 and rides uh, a lot of our technologies. And there's a couple other athletes that are starting to move towards eco boards and less toxic uh, materials in their surfboards. But the movement has been slow. And part of the reason for that is what I mentioned earlier, where a lot of pro athletes having ridden PU, PE for all of their careers are just wedded to it. But in addition, those materials are easier to work with. And when you look at the surfboard industry, it's a fairly low margin industry. And a lot of the the companies are relatively small, relatively undercapitalized. There's no huge economies of scale coming into play. So when you have a material that, yes, is more toxic, but is cheaper and easier to to work with, uh, it's hard to pass that up. especially when pro surfers are getting a couple hundred surfboards a year and the top guys aren't paying for them. It's really hard for a lot of our smaller competitors to be able to switch to more expensive materials without being able to pass that cost onto the athlete. And that's why I think you have this inertia built into a lot of the existing materials. But things are changing. and, And I do feel that Firewire has played a role in calling attention to these alternative materials and the validity of them. And we're going to continue on that path.
2: Absolutely. I wonder, is there an added cost to making a more sustainable surfboard?
4: Unfortunately, there is. Uh, And, you know, you don't get the economies of scale in terms of buying the materials themselves, because a lot of the alternative material manufacturers and vendors are smaller companies. So their uh, cost of goods are higher than the giant uh, chemical conglomerates that, that produce the traditional materials. And also the demand for them is obviously less than traditional materials. So even if the large companies are, are making them, they're not building them or producing them in the quantities that that would match their corresponding more toxic materials. So the cost of goods is higher anyway. Um, and then things like, uh, for example, epoxy resin does take longer to cure than polyester resin and time is money. So it's a little bit more labor intensive to build the boards. The cost of the materials are higher and where it gets tricky um you know if you talk to the average surfer they will say that um let's take u.s price points for example Um, our premium price points are around 795 dollars at retail and if you talk to the average surfer they would say well well that's what a surfboard's worth if you talk to the average surfboard manufacturer and they'll say look given the decades it takes to become an export board expert board builder and the time and materials it takes to build a surfboard, they're way too cheap. But at the end of the day, something's only worth what the consumer is willing to pay for it. And because historically, surfboards haven't been that durable, you know, after a year or two, you can sell them in a garage sale for a couple hundred bucks. It's depressed the consumer appreciation for what a surfboard's worth. So when you start using these more expensive, sustainable materials, It's difficult to pass those additional costs onto the consumer today because they just perceive these fixed price points as to what surfboards are worth. And when you go beyond that, you start losing market share. So you've got to have a commitment to the real long term because you're gonna eat some margin in the short run if you wanna build a less toxic surfboard. Hmm.
0: Um, One of the things that your company is doing this year, also you're expanding into longboards, Um, have, Longboards traditionally been part of the, the eco board and sustainable surf um, programs, or uh, is this sort of a, a new thing?
4: Well, we've always been in the longboard space, uh, but we haven't spent the time and attention on it as we have our shortboards. And in addition, the longboard market uh, is split into a couple different segments, and one of those segments has a particular aesthetic that they enjoy, and that's the gloss and polish finish. A lot of the traditional longboards have resin tints. It's a particular vibe to the longboard market that is quite different from the performance shortboard market. So we don't have that particular aesthetic in our shortboards that we can just then leverage into longboards. And we certainly could develop that product. Um, But Carve came along, and they're a fledgling company about five years old, They're almost like a mini firewire in the sense that they have some high profile athletes. They have a real point of difference in the construction methods and materials that they use. Highly technical surfboards, EPS and epoxy based. Um, And they have, perhaps most importantly, they have the aesthetic that the majority of longboard surfers are looking for. So it was a great plug and play opportunity for us to leverage our global platform bring a lot of our sustainability initiatives to their supply chain and offer that product to a broader audience, uh, which is part of the reason that we acquired the company.
2: I want to ask about some of the other material changes that we're seeing in the surf industry besides just boards. It seems like there's been a shift toward using recycled materials to make leashes or to make wetsuits um, or other sort of accessories that are involved in surfing as a sport. Can you maybe talk about some of uh, the trends around sustainability there?
4: Yeah, no, that is a great question. And there are a variety of products out there, to your point, that are less toxic than their predecessors. And I think part of the reason for that is, I mean, surfers by definition play in the ocean and whether it's just walking the shoreline and seeing a lot of the waste and and pollution or just, you know, having that sense of sensibility around the environment because we're in the ocean. I do think that we do gravitate towards uh, the sustainability movement and less toxic products to perhaps a greater degree than the average consumer. However, um, surfers are cheap and you've got to be able to bring all these products to market with incomparable price points uh, to the more toxic versions, which is the point that we touched on earlier. So the challenge is to be, to do that within a business model that's profitable. Um, and also, as I mentioned, you need to look long term because we believe that at some point in the future, the eco-credit or credentials of any particular product will become a driving force in the majority of consumer purchasing decisions. Whereas I would say right now, even though there's a lot of awareness around, say, climate change and the environment, environmental degradation, I don't think it's driving the majority of consumer purchases yet. But we firmly believe that day will come. And if you don't start preparing for it now, uh, we feel that you'll be kind of screwed because it's not something you can – Turn on a dime and address when that day comes.
2: Right. And speaking of looking a little bit longer term, I know that Firewire wants to become zero waste by 2020. Um, tell us, like, sort of where you're at right now.
4: Yeah. If I could just correct uh, you on the, on the terminology there, because we make the mistake as well. We're going to be zero landfill. Um, Aha. Which means, yeah. Okay. There, which there is a distinction. Uh, um, so. We currently uh, have, we've reduced our waste per board by over 95% over the last two years. And so we've got a little further to go and it results in the recycling and upcycling of the waste stream so that they don't go into landfills. And we're well on our way to achieving that goal and we're confident that by the, the end of 2020 we'll be zero landfill. Um, and I'd also like to mention that we're, we will also be fair trade certified Uh, later this year, which is a labor standard, which is incredibly important uh, to the global economy, at least we believe it is. And we will be the first and only surfboard factory, at least as of 2019, who will reach that standard.
0: Well, you know, um, you mentioned you're going to be the first company to to hit these marks. And um, just for some context, can you give us sort of an environmental report card on how uh, the surfing industry on a whole is doing? Uh, what are some of the biggest failures of the industry and some of the biggest successes that you see?
4: Well, in our particular space, you know, the, the majority of surfboards around the world are, are still built from, from some of the most toxic materials uh, available. And so we've got a lot of uh, work to do to get to the... We like to phrase it as the detoxification of the modern surfboard because... We're not building cradle to cradle fully sustainable products that's many years into the future, but there's big steps that can be taken like the EcoBoard certification that can reduce the toxicity significantly. And I think in the, in the latest statistic that uh, sustainable surf put out the EcoBoard combined EcoBoard production globally was around 60,000 units. Uh, And depending on who you talk to, the global production of surfboards is anywhere from 600,000 to about a million units. So only about 10% of the surfboards built in any given year reach EcoBoard certification today. So clearly there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, And I think the other part of it, which ties back to the broader economy, is we also have to start not only making better stuff, but buying less of it as well. So I think that the whole industry and the global economy needs to start shifting our consciousness around quality versus quantity. And, you know, given the the rampant consumerism that exists across society and it applies to the surf market as well, I think there has to be a a sea change in how we look at the things we buy, what we do with them. And uh, there's just a ton of work to be done on that front, both in the broader market and within the surf market itself. So I think, you know... uh, I don't want to sound um, pessimistic, because we are on our way, but I don't think we should delude ourselves as to how much more work needs to be done.
0: Um, can you tell us about your own history of surfing? When and where did you start? What's your favorite spot? <laughs>
4: Sure, yeah. You know, I grew up in South Africa. When I was a kid uh, in the in the 60s, surfing had a terrible reputation. So I made a deal with my dad that I could start surfing when I turned 13 because he was terrified I was going to be a hippie drug addict the moment I st- stood up on a surfboard. And he, he was uh, not 100% correct, but... That's a different story um (laughs) and so i started surfing in the early 70s in south africa i've been a lifelong surfer it's been my passion it's my north star uh every decision i make is filtered through its impact on my surfing first and foremost which i guess has narrowed the aperture of my life in some respects but it's also given me focus And um, I would have to say that Jeffrey's Bay, which is one of the top point breaks in the world located in South Africa, would certainly be my go-to spot if there was only one place I could surf for the rest of my life. Nice. Nice. Is that J Bay? Is that what they call it?
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, Mark Price, thank you for joining us on the show and telling us all about um, the things that folks in the uh, sustainable surf movement are doing to help save the oceans.
4: Oh, thanks for the opportunity.
0: Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Britney Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gecs, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.
3: Well, that was a fantastic interview. I do regret missing it. And now I'm more determined than ever to try a firewire eco board. Eco board. Yes, yes. yes.
0: there is a bunch of companies that make them. Uh, Lost Surfboards also makes them. Most of them are concentrated down in the, the San Diego area, Southern California, which is where the sustainable surf movement got started, and that's where the organization is. So, although they also, I think they're also based up here too. I don't know. I'm probably getting all of that wrong. But most of the people making eco boards are, are in are concentrated in Southern California.
3: Mm-hmm. And we had one in our gift guide late last year. So we if did. you're actually looking for more information, you can always search for Wired and... EcoBoard. Look for EcoBoard. I've written about them a couple yeah. of times. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. We've got all the info you need. Um, aside from recommending surfboard, should we get into our other recommendations? Yes. All right. Let's do it. Who would like to go first?
0: Uh, I'll go first. Okay. So my recommendation is a documentary. It's a documentary film. It is a four-hour documentary film on... The Showtime Network on Premium Cable. It is called Wu-Tang of Mics and Men.
2: Ooh, great title.
0: It's really, really good. So it's about uh, the Wu-Tang Clan, the rap group from the, well, I mean, they're still around, but uh, from like, you know, 93 until about 98, they were at absolutely the top of their game. And it is a collective of roughly 10 people who grew up together on Staten Island uh, the Rizza, the JZA, the Old Dirty Bastard, the Ghostface Killer, Master Killer, Raekwon the Chef, Method Man, sometimes Capadonna. Who else am I forgetting? I don't know. There's probably a couple in there that... Inspect a Deck? Yeah, anyway. The Wu-Tang Clan. You know the Wu-Tang Clan. It's a fantastic documentary. Um, it's not one of those, like, puffy documentaries that, you know, sort of skirts some of the more serious issues. It's a, a really... Great look at their history. It has a lot of old, um, you know, videotaped footage from the 90s. Uh, It charts their rise and then all the problems. Money changes everything with them. Uh, Cash ruins everything around them, you could say. Okay, you're not Wu Tang fans. (laughs) But they have.
3: Does it go deep in the gravel pit? What? That's Wu Tang, isn't it? Gravel pit?
0: Oh. Uh, I can't remember. (laughs) Oh, boy. I really
3: hope it was. Oh,
0: boy. I just got showed up oh, during my own recommendation. Wait, Pepe. wait.
3: I'm like 99.9999% yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Pit, yeah. yeah, the gravel pet.
0: Yeah, okay. All right. Yes, it does. It does. Oh, boy. Is my face red. Um, there's there's uh, a lot in there about how they're personal relationships fall apart and it's actually kind of interesting to see them like sitting there next to each other talking about how their personal relationships have fallen apart and how um all of their disagreements have gotten in the way but there's also this like strong bond between all of them because they all started from the same place and they all sort of lifted each other up out of that place Mm -hmm. together they're all they all have this like brotherly bond that seems eternal and uh transcends all of their Um, you know, arguments and lawsuits about money. Uh, It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. So I can definitely recommend it. It came out in May, uh, the very beginning of May. And it is four hours, but it's broken up into four parts. So... Wu-Tang of Mikes and Men. I would
3: totally watch that. Does it follow some of them throughout some of their solo careers?
0: Yeah, I mean, the solo career is a big part of their story. Mm-hmm. You know, so they put out the first record and then immediately followed up with like five solo albums mm-hmm. and the RZA produced all of them. So you see like there's, I think the whole second episode is about that. It's just about like the explosion and how marketable they are. Um, and the fascinating thing that happened is after they got success, they all wanted to get out of their contract that tied them to the Wu-Tang Clan. So he like the Riza who owned the company and his brother, they like signed away all of their artists and, you know, tremendously devalued the company that they had built. But they they still see it as the right thing to do, even though it was like a terrible business decision, because that's why they're all still friends. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty awesome.
2: Cool. We'll check that
3: out. And if you have Wu Tang songs that you think Mike should listen to, send them to his Google Drive.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, my, i am like I know the first record really well, the Thirty Six Chambers, the first ODB record, um, the Cuban Lynx record, Raekwon's record, I know really well, and Liquid Swords, the Jizz's record, I know that one really well, and Bobby Digital stuff, and that's about where I end with with uh, with my Wu knowledge.
3: It really bums me out that you didn't get that reference right away, but I'm going to forgive you for that. Yeah, sorry. It's okay. Um, I'm trying to play the official music video right now, or at least 15 seconds of it, but the (laughs) internet's not so great here. Oh no! Yeah,
0: that's bad words. You can't have that on the radio.
3: Oh, I'm getting like the extended video, so it's just taking
2: a really long time.
0: So while that loads, Ariel, what's your recommendation?
2: Uh, My recommendation is a. (laughs)
3: All right, go
2: ahead. It's so weird. You took the words right out of my (laughs) mouth. (laughs) Um, So I was in Austin for Memorial Day weekend. And uh, Austin, if you haven't visited recently, is a city that has become completely overrun by scooter and bike shares. The scooters in particular are like everywhere in Austin. It's insane. Um, So I rode uh, some scooters. I rode some jump bikes, um, but the thing I would actually like to recommend is that we um, rented a car from the peer-to-peer car rental app Turo, which is fantastic. I'd never used it before, um, but it works kind of like Airbnb for cars, so people can uh, list their vehicles on this app and um, you can rent them very, very cheaply. So um, we borrowed a car from a nice gentleman named Manish in Austin (laughs) and his car was like $20 a day or something really, really affordable. Um, And it was great. It was a really seamless experience, um, super easy and really nice to have around for the weekend. So um, if you are in the market for a car rental and don't want to go through the whole rigmarole with... Um, enterprise or budget or one of the big services, uh, Turo is a great option.
3: I second that. I've used Turo a few times and more recently I used it in LA hmm. and the crazy thing about LA is now they have an entire parking lot of Turo's. It's like going to a, a rental lot like an Avis or a Hertz and actually wonder what kind of deal they worked out. The city or the airport or whatever municipality they had to deal with in order to get this lot but it's an entire lot of Turo's. Amazing. It's wild. Yeah. It's wow. pretty great. And you wow. can be, you can like you can upgrade. You'd be like, I would like that convertible for the weekend. Thank so you, you can do like much.
0: multiple days, mm-hmm. which is something you can't do with like Zipcar. Mm-hmm. That's right. Interesting. Okay, I've always done traditional car rentals. Like I've been uh, uh, like, there's this one rental company that I've been using for literally 25 years, and they have my entire rental history going back 25 years. So I show up, and they just like give me a free upgrade. Or like they give me the insurance for free, or some crazy perk like that, just because they appreciate my business. So uh, I've never not rented from them.
3: Ariana, just just so for those of you who can't see, we're just yeah. nodding at him. Yeah, we're absolutely. Just Nobody waiting can see by, by the way. To sound- embrace <laughs> the new generation. You of sound rentals. like a person
2: who's like, well, I would just always book a hotel. Because the hotel yeah. just knows right. who I am and right. they always upgrade me. No, I, I mean, like, re- that's nice. I right? realize,
0: I realize this, yes. I, I am that person, but pretty much only with like rental cars. Sure,
3: sure, All sure. right.
1: Yeah. All right, that's fair.
3: Well, if you ever want to rent something really like different or wild or unique.
2: Yeah, one other piece of anecdotal evidence is that um, for my birthday this year uh, my boyfriend threw me a surprise party which involved driving a bunch of people up to Napa and he rented on Turo a 12 seater van which he said (laughs) was like really cheap and fit 12 of us um, which who, who, even knows like where you would rent something like that. Otherwise,
0: this is like verging on SpawnCon. It is. You're so, so, <laughs> so <laughs> about this company and how great they are.
2: Uh, if you would like to offer me some free credits, I would happily accept them. Yes, Thank you.
0: Yes. You, her, her ethics are non-existent enough where she'd totally accept those.
2: Just send them to my Google Drive. <laughs>
3: Lauren, what's your
0: recommendation? Uh,
3: my recommendation is that you run, don't walk home to watch Fleabag Season Two on Amazon Prime Video. You should also watch season one first if you mm-hmm. have not. But if you have, then you should hurry up and watch season two. It's a series that is created by created and starring Phoebe Wallace Waller excuse me. Phoebe <laughs> Waller Bridges. Thank you very much. Um, Phoebe, I love your work. I normally know your name. My brain is a little cloudy at the moment. It's just a fantastic, darkly funny um, British series. And she, as the star, um, it's often about relationships. It's often about familial relationships. It's about romantic relationships. There's this whole backstory from the first season that I think is really critical to understand, to know where some of the central characters' angst comes from. Um, But... She's just darkly funny, and she does this thing often where she breaks the plane and she speaks directly to the audience, and in season two, I think more than season one, she really embraces the idea that the audience she is speaking to are her friends, and that they are really her only friends who are supporting her in her bizarre um, sort of navigation of family life, and... um, this season centers around a hot priest. <laughs> he's called the hot priest. Uh, not my name. He's Irish. Um, I'm pretty sure he exists somewhere in a dry folder. Um, yeah, he's <laughs> Irish. And um, and uh, it's really great. There's so much tension in it. And I forget the actor's name. We were just talking the other day. I forget the actor's name who plays her sister's husband. But oh, boy, yeah. is he a great character. And her sister's a great character too. Her sister is sort of classically uptight. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, There's a lot of like sort of moments where she's able to break through the veneer of her sister and they connect and you kind of if you have siblings, you kind of understand that relationship. Um, So, yeah, it's a good series and I highly recommend it. It
0: was it was based on uh, a one woman show that she did in London and she is like I think right now or very recently did a reprise of it and now she's like putting it to bed. She's done with the show. She's done with the one-woman show, and she's done with the character, and she's moving on to other things. Um, and we
3: never know the character's name, right? Isn't no, that the thing? I think
0: I think her name is like supposed to be Phoebe, but like Fleabag is like a nickname. Yeah. And but yeah, you know, she's never she's never spoken to by name. Right. Yeah. Um, she's also uh, Phoebe is also the creator of Killing Eve. I guess the co-creator and writer of the whole first season of Killing Eve. I
3: never watched that.
0: She handed over control of that to a different person for season two, which is happening right now. Uh, But that was her uh, that was her creation as well. So lots of great stuff coming out of her mind.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, For real. Um, That's my very eloquent support of that. For real. That's great.
0: For
2: real. All right. I I back up your recommendation.
0: I binged it. It was was fantastic. I can't wait to watch it. You got to see it. Well, thank you all for listening to us ramble on uh, and uh, a reminder, not SpawnCon, not SpawnCon <laughs> <laughs> with our recommendations. You can find us all on Twitter uh, if you have things to um, yell at us or berate us or if you want our Gmail addresses, so you can send us Google Docs. Uh, Lauren, how do people find you on the Twitter?
3: You can find me at Lauren Good with an E and send me vitamin C.
0: Uh, Ariel, what is your tweeter?
2: At Part Esoteric.
0: And I am at Snackfight. And you can talk to all of us at Gadget Lab, which is the account for this show and for our channel on Wired. And we also want to welcome and thank the person sitting in the engineering chair this week, which is Boone, Boone Ashworth, who is with us uh, for the remainder of 2019 And I'm sure you'll get to hear his eloquent speaking voice uh, on some future episode. We'll be back next week talking about everything that happens at WWDC. And until then, we will see you in the gravel pit. want a new podcast to look forward to each week, one that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content, come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H A R B is in boy, I, N is in Nancy, G E R in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth, no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference.